Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hey, Mike, Damar. I've got a question. I really like to support local farmers, and I try to buy most of my produce at farmers markets, but uh, lately I've been wondering if it really makes a difference for climate change. I mean, maybe I'm jaded, but is it actually better for the planet than buying from a big grocery store with their efficient supply chain? (laughs) <laughs> or does it just make me feel better? Thanks. Get in, All right, Tamar, this is your episode. You are Ms. Local. Ms. Local? 1953 called. They want their moniker back. But I see where you're coming from. I do spend an awful lot of time involved with local food. I live on Cape Cod, and my family has been buying vegetables from the same farm literally since the 1960s. And I spend a whole lot of time knee-deep in local food. I grow it, I forage it, I fish it. And as we speak, there's a bunch of black sea bass in a cooler on my boat that I'm going to be filleting right when we're finished here. I mean, good for you. Say it with conviction. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, it's good for you. Maybe it's good for your community. I don't know. Is it really good for the planet or even good, period? I think people get so excited about eating local. It's sort of like you hear about people think they're being virtuous because they go to the mom and pop, even though it might not be better stuff or better prices or better benefits for the workers. I've never really understood the attraction of local. Awesome, Mike. We're like a minute in, and you've already pissed off half the people who are listening. (laughs) That's why they pay me the big bucks. But you're right. Local food has been so important to the people who care about the food system. It's been the thing that has been the focus of so much attention, and there's a lot to talk about, and that's what we're going to do. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald, and this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. So I think one of the, the reasons that local food has gotten such currency, and one of the reasons there's a widely held belief that buying local is better for the climate, is just transportation. Obviously, Transporting food, especially if it's refrigerated, takes resources and food that doesn't have to travel more than, you know, the few miles from the farm down the road obviously uses fewer of those resources getting to you. I think that's where it all comes from. People make the obvious assumption that closer is better than farther. And it is because transportation does use fossil fuels. The problem, though, is that when you look at food emissions, transportation produces less than 10% of them. Okay, where does the other 90% come from? (laughs) Well, right. That's the uh, multi-trillion dollar question, right? You've got fertilizer, which uh, is made of fossil fuels and creates all kinds of nitrous oxide. You've got manure, which also creates nitrous oxide as well as methane. You've got all those ruminant animals that are burping, and that creates methane. Then you've got land use, right? You've got all these farms that take up now almost half the world, and you got to cut down trees to make room for them, and that deforestation creates emissions. So all of that ends up overwhelming the importance of transportation and and lugging our food from one place to another. So, Mike, I got to ask you, you live in Miami. There's amazing produce. I have total mango envy. Tell me you don't go to the farmer's market. 
I do go to the farmer's market. I love it. There's delicious stuff, not just produce. There's an incredible plant-based burger made out of cashews that I love at, at my farmer's market. Um, we get this plant-based Indonesian food that's just delicious. There's all kind of vegan cookies that taste, well, not as good as regular cookies, but are pretty good. I have a lot of fun. I just don't delude myself that I'm saving the planet when I go. All right, well, now everybody out there knows what they're up against when he talks about going to the farmer's market and getting the cookies, vegan or not. But at <laughs> least you have to begin to understand that this is like a community touchstone. Tell me that you don't get at least a little bit of the sort of frisson of good feeling when you're there. I mean, I guess, but I get a frisson of good feeling when I go to my kids' soccer games and it doesn't really feel like I'm doing anything virtuous. You're just going to have to explain to me how local food became this kind of be-all and end-all of good food. Well, that's what I'm here for. So... To explain how local food became the be-all and the end-all, we have to get in our little time machines and go back to 2006, because that was the year that Michael Pollan published The Omnivore's Dilemma, which basically became— Oh, my God. I hate that book so much, and I hate that it's so beautifully written. <sighs> All right. I understand why you take issue, but— I'm going to defend The Omnivore's Dilemma for a couple of reasons. First of all, that was the book that really, for the first time, described to people what some of the excesses of our food system are. And it's the excesses of an industrialized food system because that's the food system we have. And Michael Pollan made basically a generation of people start caring about where their food comes from. And I was certainly one of them. At the time, I was a food writer, but I hadn't given all that much thought to food provenance. But I did after I read The Omnivore's Dilemma, and I think a lot of other people did also. And I'm also going to say, and you're going to have to say that this is totally fair too, I'm going to say— Do I have that to? Uh, yeah, well, you're, I don't, I'm not even going to have to twist your arm. That Pollen was, in the main, correct about the problems with our food system. I mean, he wrote about some of the, the problems with monocrops. He wrote about industrial animal agriculture. And a lot of that stuff was eye-opening and absolutely correct. You have to admit that, don't you? I think we're going to have to save that one for a future episode, but do proceed. Okay. okay, okay. So here's my thing about Michael Pollan and basically the good food movement that sort of came out of that and some other things at the time, too. So I think he and a lot of people are absolutely right about the problems, but the problems are a lot easier to identify than the solutions. And so the solution that is most prominent in The Omnivore's Dilemma is, of course, Joel Salatin's farm, Polyface Farm, where it's the kind of farm that everybody likes to think about a farm being. It grows all kinds of things. He has animals out on pasture. People can come and see how food is grown. He supplies his local community. It's the kind of farm that everybody really loves to love. Didn't he and, turn out to be some psycho right-wing nut? 
Okay, we can't hold any of his subsequent opinions against Pollan, who wrote about him in 2006. We are going to separate his politics from his farm for purposes of this episode. So, but yeah, he kind of did. So this idea of this small, local, diverse farm took hold in the public's mind. and. At the time, there was no real rigorous analysis of what the impact on climate was. In fact, I remember reading The Omnivore's Dilemma and even then being a little skeptical of that kind of farm being the solution. And at the time, I was living in Manhattan because, you know, he talked about the transport costs of food. And then there was somebody in the book who said, they drove 150 miles each way to buy Salatin's chicken. And I'm like, that can't add up. And so I think that, to Pollan's credit, he was correct about a lot of the problems, but I think he was less than rigorous in what he proposed as a solution. Is that fair? Well, look, I think we're going to end up fighting about those problems for uh, as long as we do this podcast. But I will say that in 2006, you know, that's the year that An Inconvenient Truth came out. And before that, people weren't thinking about the climate, right? You know, and certainly they weren't thinking about the climate in the food context. So I think it's, it's fair that, you know, people who thought like pesticides are bad, fertilizers are bad, Driving trucks across the country is bad. Don't say it with that voice because <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. It's the only voice I've got. <laughs> no, no, no. Because the people who are saying those things, you know, transportation is bad, fertilizer is bad, they're not wrong. And unlike most of the people in America, those are the people who care about what's happening in our food system. So don't make fun of them. Well, that's fair. And I'm sorry if I made fun of them. I'm going to make a little bit of fun of them because... You're going to make a lot of fun of them over and over. (laughs) (laughs) Climate is a math problem, you know, and they got to do the math just like all of us. And, And look, it turns out that a lot of climate has to do with efficiency, right? It's about how much food can we make and how much land with how many resources. And the more you can make with the fewest amount of resources, the better it's going to be for the climate. And it does turn out that some of these industrial practices that we hate so much, um, where they're using fertilizer, which does have all kinds of climate problems, but also helps stuff grow, and using pesticides, which are made in factories that do use fossil fuels, but also stop pests. It turns out this is much more important to the climate calculus than how far food is moving and whether it's being tended with love by Joel Salatin. For starters, I am not the enemy of efficiency. I am all in on efficiency. I write and talk and rant on Twitter all the time about how important efficiency is. And I'm still a fan of local because there are a lot of other things that go on besides climate impact that I think local food matters for. And before and besides we even... efficiency, right? So we right. should just say, I mean, I'm not saying that efficiency is the only thing, but if you're talking about climate, efficiency is really important. Now, there may it be is. other things other than climate that are important. 
So I've been told. I don't know. I can't imagine what they are. And that's the crux of why local food isn't better for the climate, because for the most part, small local farms are not growing vegetables as efficiently as they can on big mechanized farms in ideal climates like California. I got to tell you, you know, my local farmer's market, we get raspberries that are that are flown in from California. All right. So says the guy who's eaten like the vegan cookies. So, yeah, all kinds of stuff shows up at farmer's market that isn't local produce. But that's kind of what we're talking about here is local produce. And if we're going to do math, let's do a little more math. Vegetables are an incredibly small part of our agriculture and of our diet. So in the U.S., for example, we have 400 million crop acres. Do you know how many are vegetables? Yeah, it's tiny. So vegetables are 1% of our crop acreage. And it's unlikely that they're ever going to be more because there's not this huge demand for more American-grown vegetables. American vegetable consumption is flatlined since the 70s. So if we're talking about the impact of food on climate, vegetables are a blip. They're a rounding error. And so I think when we're talking about where you buy your vegetables, climate-wise, in the big picture, it's just not going to matter very much. Well, let me just push back for a minute, because I think it is true that in the large scheme of things, vegetables are a tiny part of our food. And in fact, local food is a tiny amount of our food. But we got to look at what we're buying and its marginal impact. And in fact, the vegetables that you buy at the farmer's market, I live here in Florida, where vegetables are a huge part of the destruction of the Everglades, which happens to be not only the most important ecosystem around, and one that's, as you know, close to my heart, but is an incredible carbon sink um, that's been ravaged over the years in large part by vegetable farming. So if I buy my vegetables on Cape Cod, I'm offloading the Everglades, and that's good for the climate, right? (laughs) So I think it's completely fair to say that uh, climate is not the only thing that we should think about when we make our food choices. But just because vegetables are a tiny part of our food choices, there still can be better vegetable choices and worse ones. And I have never seen a lot of evidence that buying local ones is necessarily better. And I totally agree. When it comes to climate, buying local ones is not better. But there's so, so tell, much. So tell us about what the other the other benefits of, of local food, because I got to admit, this is where I'm not the expert. just going to go there. So here's the <laughs> thing about local food. And I think most people who look at it rigorously come to the same conclusion. And there was a report out of Johns Hopkins a few years ago that basically concluded the same thing that, that I've been concluding all these years, which is that, no. It's not better for the climate. And by the way, Thank no, they're you. not. I, oh, come on. I fessed up from the beginning. And no, it's, by the way, it's not better for your health either. But there are things that it is that. better for. And it is, uh, I think that it's great to have open spaces in communities. And I live in the kind of community that I think benefits from having agriculture. It means that there is a place you can bring a kid to show where where a carrot 
comes from or to come face to face with a pig, to buy eggs that just got laid this morning. And I think introducing children to food that way is beneficial, especially in a culture where we have gotten away from the source of our food. I think it keeps the money in local economies, which is a good thing. And also, I think, and let's talk about that frisson of good feeling when you go to the farmer's market. I think it's a non-trivial thing that the farmer's market becomes a community touchstone, that people look forward to going to it, that people see their neighbors and talk to people they might not otherwise see. And no, we can't really quantify that, but it still matters. But I think that's an argument for why it's a good thing to have People who love to go to NASCAR. That's a a different group of, you know, (laughs) overwhelmingly white people. I think it's a great thing that people like NASCAR and find a sense of community in that. But why is it an important thing? Why is it good for the earth or good for anything other than the people who happen to like NASCAR? Why is a local farm better than a local grocery store or a local convenience store that has stuff from far away? There's an answer to that, and that there is a feel-good aspect, and I know you're going to poo-poo it because it's a feel-good thing. There is a feel-good aspect to going to the farmer's market that people have talked about and written about. And again, I am going to say that it's real, and it's important in a small sort of community scale. And yeah, I get your point about NASCAR, but I'm going to say that there's there's a wholesomeness to a farmer's market trip that probably doesn't really accrue to a NASCAR trip. And what it adds up to I think when you take all of those benefits, the keeping dollars in local communities, having a place to acquaint yourself and your children with food, having a community touchstone farmer's market. I think all of those things add up to something important, whereas the climate impact of vegetables is, as we said, just a blip on the the climate impact of food scale. And for me, those other things outweigh the climate impact. I guess I just don't understand what the local farmer's market is, is why that's better than going to any other local retail store who I'm sure, you know, the proprietors of them feel like they're doing something great for the community too. I'm um, not going to make you feel it. And, you know, I'm in favor of other kinds of local businesses also. And a local grocery store that carries local food is is a win two ways. And I guess I should also say that, okay, I have a local farm, and I liked local agriculture before I had one, but when people come to my farm and we take them out in the boat and they come out and they see how oysters are grown and we take an oyster out of a tray and we open it and we give it to them, that's an experience that people find interesting and maybe even memorable. and. I think that people are the better for having experiences like that when we live in a world that distances us from our food in all kinds of ways. You're kind of romanticizing local food in a way that I think is fair and that a lot of people do, but you can romanticize just about local anything. And I do think it's important that, remember, this used to be an agrarian nation where everybody made their own food. And... I'm sure there were some nice things about it, but now we live in a country where less than 1% of 
of us are farmers. Okay. And there's no doubt that something's <laughs> lost, that we think our food just kind of materializes on the grocery shelves. But I think it's kind of nice that the, the rest of us can write the magazine stories or, you know, build the houses or, you know, whatever it is that people want to do in their lives that is not farming. It used okay. to be something we all had to do. Where do I begin with the arguments here? First of all, I am not romanticizing. I am explicitly citing advantages that people have studied and people have written about. And just because the experience is intangible doesn't mean it isn't real. In fact, I believe this is the first time in my entire career of writing about food I've been accused of romanticizing. Second, (laughs) nobody here on this podcast wants to turn the clock back on modern agriculture. I have a small farm, but I have the luxury of choosing to have a small farm. I don't want anybody to have to do subsistence agriculture. And I think the idea that our modern food system has freed us to do jobs like the ones you and I have is is little short of miraculous. But that doesn't mean local food chosen can't play a role. Well, I think, as you've said, it's a way for people to feel like they're fighting the power and they don't feel like there's any other way to, you know, dissent from the industrial agriculture that lots of people have problems with. Um, I think, I, you know... I'm going to interrupt to agree with you, Mike. How about that? <laughs> So <laughs> is that is that the first time you've ever done that? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> because and maybe the last. <laughs> it's absolutely true that and this goes back to to what we were talking about with the omnivore's dilemma that people have been sort of educated about the problems with their food system but haven't been given any really good way to opt out, mostly because there really isn't a good way to opt out. And so local agriculture is the best proxy they have for a way of opting out of the industrialized food system. And, you know, organic is another one. Non-GMO is another one. And, you know, there are other examples of that, that that people can hang their hats on that. And I understand why they do, because it's the only way you can vote no on the excesses of industrialized agriculture. So I think we've stunningly agreed that there really isn't much of a climate benefit um, for for most local food. And you've come up with some kind of ineffable, intangible benefits um, that maybe I'm a a little bit skeptical of. But now that I've done all this ruthless math— Maybe I need to admit that there are a few areas where eating local actually can help the climate. I think you're right. And we might actually agree on those, too. And I think we should make it a habit of saving our agreement for last. (laughs) Mike is totally right that there are exceptions to this. And if your food is transported by air, it turns all of that climate math on its head. If it flies, its carbon footprint goes up to the point where local asparagus would absolutely be the better choice. And the difficulty, though, is that it's really hard to know if your food flies. And some of the foods that fly are some of the more expensive and delicate fruits and vegetables, berries fly a lot of the time. Some fish flies. Oysters sometimes fly. But there's no way to know. So 
If you're looking at a food that does sometimes fly, your local choice is often going to be the better one for climate. So I'll, I'll tell a little story about my my favorite kind of local food, because I think it's not what people associate with their farmer's market. So salmon usually flies either from the northernmost reaches of, of Norway or the southernmost reaches of Chile. Um, it You want to talk about food miles, it is a climate disaster. And so there turns out to be a local farm near me uh, that is not the kind of uh, sort of organic farm that people think of uh, when they think of this stuff. It's called the Blue House. And it is a fish farm that is right at the edge of my beloved Everglades. It's on 160 acres of actually former tomato farms, and they are going to grow half of the U.S. salmon diet. They're going to put together 220,000 tons of salmon a year in these giant tanks. There is certainly nothing natural about it, but from an environmental perspective, it's incredible. Fish farming has a terrible reputation because it's usually done in the ocean and you create all these pesticides and antibiotics and microplastics and the fish escape and they destroy the wild fish population. And of course the fish poop and create all those sorts of problems. This fish farm in the Blue House has none of those problems. Now, it's weird. <laughs> there are these gigantic tanks of fish swimming around, and it's it's not natural, but they don't use antibiotics. They don't use pesticides. There's no microplastics. There's no escapes. And these fish are unbelievably efficient because, remember, they're cold-blooded, so they don't have to have a metabolism, and their water supports them, so they don't have to spend a lot of energy building bones. Um, really, what they're building is salmon fillet, and they do it in an incredibly efficient way. They are going to produce astonishing amounts of food for relatively modest amounts of resources incredibly modest amounts of land, and then they're not going to have to put them on planes. They're already sending them on trucks. I can buy them in my local Publix. And again, it's not the kind of local food that we think of, but it's a way of dramatically reducing the emissions impact of the same amount of protein. That's a great example. And I think it's one way we can think about sort of local foods in a completely different way that defies our expectations or our ideas about what local food is. But I feel obligated to point out that there are examples on the other side, too. You know, one of the concerns that makes people shop locally is animal welfare. And I've got my problems, and I've written about it pretty extensively, with the way animals are treated in our industrial food system. But I have to say the single worst set of conditions for animals that I ever saw was on a small organic farm right here in our community that is now, it's long gone now. But local doesn't always translate to better when it comes to animal conditions. And I guess as a local farmer, I have a window into local agriculture and what people see and what they don't see. Okay, I'm an oyster farmer and, you know, oysters are good for the environment, so people love to love an oyster farm, but some farmers have better practices than other farmers. And you as a consumer will never see that. And of course, you know, nobody's going to tell you, but we know and the regulators know and 
what you see as a consumer of local farms is not the big picture. Well, this is really part of my objection to the kind of cult of local, right? Is that there's this illusion of transparency. People think that, oh, because they can see the food, it looks fresh, it says organic on it, or, you know, it's being sold by a farmer who maybe they know or is at least at the market every week, um, that they know kind of not just where it came from, but how it was made and really what its impact is on the planet and on ourselves. And I just think, you know, that's kind of bogus. Farming is a very complicated enterprise where a lot of it has to do with, you know, what kind of land is used? What was on that land before it became a farm? How much food does that farm produce? How many acres will be needed to produce the same amount of food that maybe a more efficient farm can produce? And these are not the kind of things that you can see when you feel that avocado in front of you or you say, hmm, that looks like a nice mango. Okay, and I agree with you, but the problem here is they're not the kinds of problems you can see at the grocery store either. And so people who are trying to buy climate-friendly food don't have the information to make those choices. All you can do is sort of decide on the category. And yes, lentils are better than beef, and don't say it, but, you know, staple crops in general, you know, beans, grains, things that can be grown efficiently, those are great for climate. But if you're going to go into the vegetable aisle, you just don't have the information to make the decision. So all in all, Mike's right. And the question on the table was whether local food is better for the climate, and the answer is no, it's not. But if you buy it for other things, if you like the feeling of going to the farmer's market, if if it feels like it connects you to your community, if you like to make a farm visit with your kid, keep doing it. Well, I'm definitely not going to tell people to stop doing things they like to do. I'm just the hard ass who's going to sit here and say, It's not going to reduce your emissions. It's not going to help your carbon footprint. Uh, Local may have all kinds of intangible benefits, but they are usually not climate benefits. That's not where our emissions are coming from. This is a math problem. If you want to reduce your food emissions, you have to think about what food you're eating, not so much where your food comes from. And speaking of which, our next episode is going to be about the food that you really shouldn't be eating if you care a lot about the climate. And that food, I regret to tell you, is beef. I hate to give Mike the last word, but it's an important last word, and I largely agree with him on that. But we're going to go into it in the next episode. And meantime, Climavores is a production of Postscript Media. We want to hear from you. This show is all about addressing your questions, your dilemmas, your passion about food, food and climate, food and anything. So give us a call and leave us a message. We're at 508-377-3449. Or drop us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. And we'll try to get your question into an upcoming episode. This show is hosted by me, Michael Grunwald. And me, Tamar Haspel. And our crack production team is Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey as executive producers, Ann Bailey as senior editor, and Cecily Mesa-Martinez as managing producer. Dalvin Abawaje is our associate producer, and Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. 
The best way you can spread the word about us is giving us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. And if you have a climate-conscious foodie in your life, give them a link. So we will catch you next week when we talk about beef. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.